I'm very pleased to welcome Xuefei Ren to this uh, virtual <laughs> version of the Fairbank Center. And I hope we can follow this up with an in-person visit sometime soon. Um, Professor Ren teaches sociology at Michigan State and she received her PhD at the University of Chicago. She was also a participant in the Public Intellectuals Program uh, at the National Committee on US-China Relations that Ezra Vogel helped to establish. So it seems very fitting to invite her to speak in this lecture series, which he also established here at Harvard. Professor Wren has published three very interesting books about urbanization and globalization in China, focusing on how these processes have transformed China's built landscape, its class structure, and local governance. And today she's gonna to speak about her most recent book that you see here on the screen, Governing the Urban in China and India. So welcome to this virtual Fairbank Center and Xuefei, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, Naira, thank you for the introduction and thank you for inviting me to be a part of the series. Uh, for the last two months, I've listened to uh, many of your events and I've learned <laughs> a lot from almost every talk. So I feel really honored to be a part of the same colloquium series. Um, so today I'm going to talk about my uh, book, which uh, came out last year. The book compares cities in China and India and specifically urban governance in uh, these two countries. So my field is uh, global urban studies and in um, which is, um, I, I think a little bit different from China studies, but I believe that in both fields, these two countries are frequently compared, China and India for uh, different uh, people compare the two countries um, for different um, research questions. Um, and if we read the literature, the scholarship on China-India comparison, you will see a clear trend, which is uh, the focus of the comparison tends to be on regime types or political regimes. So a lot of people argue that the two countries are different because um, China is not democratic and India is. And therefore, for example, cities or urban policies work differently um, in the two countries. So um, part of the reason or motivation for me to uh, start uh, working on this project uh, was to challenge that assumption a little bit that which is all the differences between the two large uh, countries can be explained by regime types. Um, I think regime types, democracy versus non-democracy can certainly explain a lot of variations, but there are other kinds of differences which require different explanations. So that's uh, my entry point uh, to the project. So, um, so first of all, I think I will just uh, walk you through um, a brief uh, overview of uh, the different urban trajectories of China and India. Um, both countries have urbanized quite rapidly over the last three or four decades. But the driver for urban population growth has been, uh, is quite different. So for China, I think all of you are familiar with the story. Um, for China, the main uh, 
mechanism or driver for urban population growth has been migration. And that has been the case since uh, 1980s, early 1980s for the last uh, four decades. If uh, we look at the most recent census from 2020, one of the biggest surprises from the 2020 census is migration has not slowed down. So uh, the 2020 census recorded 55 million more migrants compared to the 2010 census, which is really a big surprise for demographers because um, before the 2020 census, uh, the social scientists relied on the national sample surveys. So China conducts uh, one, uh, uh, 1% national sample survey in uh, 1990, every five years from 1995. And then for every uh, each year, um, the country also does a 0.1% national sample survey. So these are not census. So those surveys before the 2020 uh, census suggested um, uh, like a rapid uh, slowing down of <laughs> migration. So this, uh, the numbers uh, released last year um, are quite surprising people uh, have not stopped migrating. And one out of uh, three people in China uh, lives in a place where uh, their hukou is not registered. So, so the big story is migration has been driving China's urban population growth for the last four decades. And for India, um, it, that is not the case. Uh, so the main driver for India's urban population growth has been uh, natural population growth. So India has a much higher fertility rate than China. Not surprisingly, China had uh, the one-child policy for so long. So its fertility rate is one of the lowest uh, in the world. So there are three things that um, um, have been driving uh, urban population growth in India. Natural population growth, migration, and then in-situ urbanization. So here um, I have two pictures from uh, one of my fieldwork sites in India. It's a small town called Singer uh, in the state of West Bengal. Um, Singer, so what, uh, what, what kind of place is it? And why did I choose to study Singer? It's, um, it's an urbanized small town. Most of the people or residents uh, in the town don't, they are not farmers. They don't work in the agriculture sector. Uh, they work in manufacturing services, transportation, or other uh, non-agriculture sectors. So it's a good example of uh, urbanized um, small town, uh, small towns. Um, and in India, they have a name for um, these places. They are called census towns. So for the census purpose, the people, residents living in Singer are counted as urban. But in terms of governance, uh, the place doesn't have a city government, no municipal government. And some people estimate that 20%, at least 20% of India's urban population can be traced to um, census towns, which means 20% of India's urban population lives in cities that have no local governments. Um, 
So these places are uh, managed by village councils. And in India, village councils don't have the same power as municipal governments. They don't have the power to uh, tax. And without taxation, they don't have revenue. So uh, they can't even provide the most basic services, such as um, street cleaning or um, garbage collection. So that's the census town phenomena is probably one of the biggest challenges for India. How can you run cities without uh, local governments? Um, and in the book, I discussed a little bit why um, the central and the state governments are so resistant or reluctant uh, uh, for uh, uh, giving or granting uh, the municipal status to these places. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons uh, from um, uh, one of the factors is um, there the, the upper level governments just don't want to share power with uh, localities. If they make a village or a town into a city, then it means the local leaders would have more power. So, so they um, uh, perceive um, the relationship as a zero sum game. If we give the locals more power, then we lose power as uh, state governments. So that's one of the factors. Um, so to summarize, uh, for China, migration has been driving China's urban population growth. And for India, it's a combination of three things, natural population growth, in-situ urbanization, and also uh, migration. And in-situ urbanization means people are not migrating, but the places where they live are urbanizing because people are leaving agriculture for other uh, jobs. Um, so for the book, I was mainly interested in just one big question. What's the, uh, besides political regimes, what are other major differences in the way China and India run their cities? And my um, main argument is uh, the territorial versus associational logics of urban governance. Um, I argued that uh, for China, at least, if we look at how urban policies are made and also implemented, they are pretty much uh, shaped by a um, very strong layer of local territorial institutions, such as the hukou system or the system by which China promotes local officials. And I describe this as territorial because they have strong links to uh, localities. Um, they distribute rights, benefits, also responsibilities, also social welfare, according to administrative jurisdictions. So in that sense, these are territorial institutions. For India, uh, we don't, uh, at least I don't <laughs> observe or see uh, a similar set of strong uh, territorial institutions. And instead, policymaking and implementation is um, more fluid and also contingent upon coalition building between state bureaucracies, the private sector, and also civil society groups. So I describe that arrangement as associational. And that's uh, the main uh, finding from, from the project. Um, and for the rest of the book, I basically told three stories, uh, very different stories. The first story is on housing, uh, specifically uh, informal housing. So I compared 
urban villages in Guangzhou and slums in Mumbai. And then I also looked at land grabs uh, in Singer, the two pictures I just showed you, and then uh, Wukan in uh, Guangdong province in China. And then the last story is uh, air pollution uh, reduction or air pollution campaigns in the two capital cities in Beijing and Delhi. So I basically used these three very different stories to um, um, illustrate the difference between the territorial and associational logics of uh, governing cities. So today I will not talk all about all three. I think that will take too much time. So very briefly, I will just share with you some of the highlights about uh, the housing chapter and then the story on air pollution control. If you have questions on land grabs, I, I will answer <laughs> all your questions at Q&A. Um, so for housing, I'm an urban sociologist and all urban sociologists love writing about housing. So, so I decided to uh, compare um, the um, urban redevelopment, how uh, that works in Guangzhou and Mumbai. So, so here, the focus of the comparison is the politics of compensation. When uh, urban villages and slums are demolished or redeveloped, who gets compensated, how much, and who is included? So that's the empirical question for the comparison. Um, and before I get to the finding, I just want to make a quick note about uh, informal, what, what informal settlement means. It, so the word informal uh, means uh, very different things in uh, the Chinese and Indian context. In China, at least in Guangzhou, informal, doesn't mean uh, illegal land ownership. The land ownership is rural, collective. So there is no, uh, it's pretty clear, straightforward. Uh, the villagers are legal landowners. So informal mostly means illegal construction. In Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and other Pearl River Delta cities, local governments often only allow three stories uh, to be built on a rural, uh, collectively owned land. But to uh, maximize rents, uh, the, these urban village landlords often build more than three stories. So the extra floors are illegal. So in that sense, these are informal settlements. And for India, uh, almost everywhere, informal often means uh, lack of legal ownership over land. So the slum dwellers, most of them are um, squatters. So they occupy often uh, public land belonging to uh, the central government or state governments of the different municipal bureaucracies. And then they build um, uh, structures. So it's, it implies uh, the lack of um, legal uh, land ownership. So there's a big difference uh, in, uh, in, in uh, um, the way what uh, informal uh, uh, implies. <clears throat> so, um, so back to the story on uh, urban village redevelopment. So from my field work, um, I found that the amount of compensation really um, depends on three local uh, territorial institutions. The first one is Hukou. Uh, the second one is 
rural land ownership. And the third one, which is the most interesting finding for me, uh, is the ownership in uh, village companies. So all of the, almost all, and probably not 100%, but close, um, most of the urban villages in the south of China have been incorporated as shareholding companies. Um, and the villages uh, run, have different businesses, such as um, cinema, parking lots, hotels, uh, and other rental businesses. At the end of a fiscal year, the village company uh, would give money back to the villagers based on their share. And different families have a different number of shares or stocks uh, in the village company. So the number of shares also determines how much compensation they would get when their apartment buildings get demolished. So, um, so the um, compensation really boils down to land ownership, hukou status, and the membership in the uh, village companies. Uh, for Mumbai, it, um, it, it works uh, completely in different ways. So uh, Mumbai is in the state of uh, Maharashtra. And for many years, almost 20 years ago, the state government picked a random date, January 1st, 2000, as the cutoff point. If the slum residents can prove that they've lived in their communities since January 1st, 2000, then they are eligible for compensation. But now we are already in 2021. So that's a long time. It's a very high bar. Most residents are, can't qualify because they haven't lived there um, in their community for, for 20 years. And even for the long-term residents, they often um, don't have the proper paperwork uh, proof to show uh, they are eligible. So therefore, slum re uh, redevelopment in Mumbai and also in other cities is very controversial because most of the slum dwellers are not eligible for any compensation. So when redevelopment happens, most people simply get uh, evicted without any, <laughs> any compensation. So, um, but the cutoff point uh, in the case of Mumbai is often negotiated between residents and um, the developers. And sometimes the state bureaucracies also intervene. So it's, um, it is a hard, uh, strict cutoff point. But in, if we look at the practices, um, it's um, the cutoff cut, cut point often didn't matter for many of uh, Mumbai's redevelopment, slum redevelopment projects. The developers sometimes would actually give compensation <laughs> to a residents because once they move, then the land is available, then they can quickly build and sell um, uh, uh, the new uh, apartment buildings or apartment units at a market price. So uh, it's a much more fluid situation. And in the case of Mumbai, the compensation doesn't um, um, depend on any uh, local territory institutions or authorities. So that's uh, the story about housing. And now, uh, very quickly, I'll uh, tell you a little bit about um, the, the story on air pollution. And I think this is an even 
better illustration of the difference between the territorial and associational approaches to uh, urban governance, in this case, to environmental protection. Um, both capital cities are polluted, but that's not why I picked these two cities, <laughs> because uh, the smaller towns uh, in the two countries are often uh, much more polluted than the two capitals. So I chose Beijing and Delhi because most of the legislation, uh, clean air uh, campaigns or legislation, five-year plans or different local action plans, they often took place uh, in, uh, they were launched uh, in the capital, uh, in the two capitals first, and then other cities would follow what happened in Beijing and Delhi and draft their own plans. So for Delhi, from the early 1980s until today, the main actor in um, uh, the field of um, uh, um, um, air pollution control has been environmental NGOs. And they're different. Um, there's a, not that many, but there's a few very powerful and resourceful environmental NGOs based in Delhi. And for the last 40 years, uh, they, uh, their main strategy has been mobilizing um, the Supreme Court of India, and then also different ministries and bureaucracies within the central government and also the uh, Delhi government. And also they reach out to uh, the private sector. So they, um, over time, for the last 40 years, they had uh, different uh, agendas or different goals for air pollution reduction. And each time uh, they had to assemble a network of actors. Um, um, most of the time that network included the Indian Supreme Court. And then they uh, tried to achieve their goals. And not every time they were successful. The biggest victory was in the late 1990s when they um, managed to um, persuade the government to order uh, uh, the, all the public wheels in Delhi to change uh, to clean fuel. So that's the biggest uh, victory uh, in the 1990, er, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so the environmental NGOs have been driving Delhi's clean air campaign. And for China, uh, there, Beijing has many, many environmental NGOs, but they are not uh, the, the leaders. Uh, the leaders are municipal government and the subordinate district governments. And in general, Beijing is not an exception. Almost everywhere in China, the cities follow the same approach, which is um, in Chinese is called target uh, the target responsibility system. So, um, so the central government would mandate a time-bound pollution reduction target. For example, uh, reducing PM 2.5 level by uh, 30% in the next five years. So that, that's the national target. And then uh, all the provinces, cities, towns, also districts, down to the district level. So all these subnational units would um, follow the suit and then choose uh, a target for their own uh, jurisdiction. And then every year, the local officials are evaluated by their um, supervisors, uh, upper level uh, governments, uh, to, to see if they've met 
the target or not. And if they don't meet the target, then they would be in trouble. They at least they won't get uh, promoted anytime soon. So, um, so it's a high pressure system. Uh, the central government would exert a lot of pressure on the provinces, and then the provincial chiefs would add pressure to the um, uh, for our local officials. Uh, so the local officials they are held responsible for meeting air pollution control targets. That's how um, uh, it works. And I use the word uh, territorial to describe uh, the target responsibility system because um, the performance, because local officials only care their environmental performance within their jurisdictions. So for Beijing, they pay a lip service and they say, okay, we will work together together with Hebei, Inner Mongolia, Shanxi, Shanxi, these surrounding provinces. But in reality, uh, there is no incentive for the Beijing officials to really collaborate with these other surrounding provinces. Um, so, and that's true for the uh, Pearl River Delta and Yangtze River Delta. There are mayor's forum uh, in all these mega urban regions. So the mayors say, okay, we will work together with other cities to reduce air pollution because air doesn't follow administrative boundaries. So they say that, but in reality, there's very little action. Um, so that's why I, I think the air pollution example is a, a good case uh, demonstrating how the territorial approach to uh, environmental protection uh, works in China. Um, so that's uh, another case study um, I did for the book. And today um, I just I have just one slide on COVID. This is not in the book, um, but it's related to um, uh, urban governance. Um, I uh, just want to share with you some of uh, my <clears throat> reflections over what China has been doing to uh, achieve COVID zero or zero tolerance toward <coughs> COVID-19. So <clears throat> if we look at the main, uh, the most effective measures China has been using, lockdown, grid governance, uh, which translates as Wanggehuaguanli, mass testing, digital surveillance, and also the closed border. All of these main COVID-19 measures are territorial. Um, lockdown and border control are obvious territorial because they basically freeze an entire region of a country. <clears throat> and grid governance is also territorial. Um, the cities, not only cities, uh, also the, even the rural areas now have, uh, they've been using the grid governance system to track infections and send people to uh, quarantine centers every um, jurisdiction is divided into tens of thousands of small cells with GPS technology. And every cell is about one or two square uh, kilometers. And then um, government employees and also citizen volunteers, they work as uh, great managers to watch um, everything uh, within their cell. So that's how great governance works. And mass testing, uh, so a lot of Chinese cities have done mass testing. So they've tested almost everybody living uh, in their uh, city limits. 
But the question is, why is it possible for a, a city like Shenzhen, more than 10 million people, to finish testing everybody within a week? That's that. That's really amazing. <laughs> um, so, and the answer is again great governance. Um, <clears throat> so, um, the city would um, install testing centers in each multiple testing centers in each grid, and then <clears throat> excuse me, then the grid managers are held responsible to finish uh, their quota. So that's how um, uh, and why mass testing. Uh, within a week, even for the mega cities, uh, uh, it's possible. So my sense is that uh, the territorial logic of governing cities of um, containing the pandemic, uh, controlling COVID-19, has further uh, strengthened uh, over the last two years, um, and it it will probably continue. Um, we have the Olympics in a few months, and then an important political meeting in late 2022. So it will go on for a while. Um, <clears throat> so last slide, just to summarize uh, the talk. So basically the book addresses an old fashioned question, which is who governs the Chinese and the Indian city? And I've argued that for China, um, it's um, a thick layer of local territorial institutions and authorities. So they make policies and then they um, pretty much decide how the policies can be or should be implemented. And for Indian cities, uh, there is a vacuum of power at the local level because the municipal institutions are so weak. They don't have the power, fiscal capacity, and they don't even... Also, sometimes they don't have the legal uh, authority to make urban policies because the Indian constitution, um, 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 it's written in the Indian constitution that housing, land use planning, urban transportation are domains of state governments, not municipal governments. So um, in the vacuum of uh, powerful municipal institutions, we see a multitude of actors competing with each other for power and for influence in Indian cities. So I describe that uh, situation as associational. To make things happen, um, whether it's a policy or legislation or program, um, the main uh, leader or actor has to build around itself a successful coalition. That's the only way to um, move forward. So that's, uh, so nobody governs the Indian city. Uh, there are so many players and um, um, it's really case by case. <clears throat> and then I will just stop by uh, saying a few words <laughs> um, about uh, the question, so what? So why uh, does it matter if some cities are territorial and other cities are associational? Um, I think uh, there are there are two levels uh, here at the everyday, uh, very concrete level, and then at a more abstract level. So for the everyday level, uh, the territorial associational approach to urban governance really affects uh, the way people live their lives in Chinese and Indian cities. So one good example is uh, the COVID measures. There's nobody in China who hasn't been affected by Chinese territorial 
approach to uh, achieve zero um, infection. <clears throat> um, and for India, um, it's, um, it's, it's a very different situation. Um, and at the abstract level, I think the territorial and associational logics of urban governance have produced different forms of inequality in the two societies. Both countries are very unequal places, but uh, the forms or uh, patterns of inequality uh, uh, look very different between the two countries. In China, inequality has a strong spatial or geographic dimension. For example, the widening regional disparity between the coastal provinces or between the top tier superstar cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and everybody or other cities. So that gap is widening. Um, and for India, inequality is less uh, uh, geographic. There is regional disparity, of course, but it's <laughs> obvious as what we see uh, in China. And instead, inequality is more structured by networks. So for example, for the middle class, urban middle class, and also for the rich, they are more likely than the poor to uh, succeed in building networks and coalitions with politicians, with the municipal institutions to get a water connection, uh, to get stable electricity and other amenities. And for the poor, they want to do the same, but they probably, their best chance is right before elections when politicians want their votes. And the other times they are um, less successful in uh, uh, building networks uh, or uh, coalitions with the politicians. So uh, I think at the higher level, not the everyday level, <laughs> um, <clears throat> these two approaches to governing cities have uh, led to different forms of uh, inequality in the two countries. So I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening and I uh, look forward to your questions. Thank you very much for um, a great talk and uh, all our participants can put questions into the Q&A box and uh, I will help um, Shuefe field those questions. Um, so feel free to put them in there. But I wanted to start off with a question of my own. Um, I think it was in your second book, you made this argument that India and other developing countries were learning the wrong lessons from the China model, particularly the Shanghai model, and that you thought that they were taking um, the worst aspects of China's urbanization strategy as a basis for their own policy. And so I'm wondering now, after you've done this um, extensive fieldwork um, and research on both countries, if you still feel the same way, or if um, you've changed your mind or India has changed its approach to these policies. And I'm wondering what you think the two countries can learn from each other um, in terms of urban governance. Right, that's a, a very big question. <laughs> I think the situation has definitely changed uh, from uh, the time when I wrote my second book uh, called Urban China. 
um, <clears throat> the relationship between the two countries has become very intense. Um, there was a border conflict uh, not long ago and some Indian soldiers were killed. And also I think there's casualty on the Chinese side. Um, I think in general, the attitude towards China within India has uh, become uh, quite negative. And I haven't been back in India for two years, I, um, but my impression is probably there's less uh, willingness willingness uh, to uh, learn from, from China. And also China has become so aggressive on so many fronts and uh, China has so few friends <laughs> in the international community. I think it's not only for India, also for other parts of the world, um, the, um, um, the regions, countries used to admire uh, what China has achieved, but over the course of the pandemic, I think that um, perception has changed quite a bit. Um, and for the second part of your question, uh, if there are indeed some lessons that can be learned, what, <laughs> what, what are they? I think that's um, it's uh, it, this is not um, um, uh, it. I, I I think I've discussed it in the book, but it, this is an obvious point for most people uh, writing about Indian cities. The main weakness for Indian cities is uh, the lack of uh, municipal power. So the city governments don't have any substantial power. The mayors in India have only one year, so th their term is often one year. Um, and it's um, it's not it's mostly like a symbolic post. Um, so for the mayor of Mumbai, uh, many times people don't know who's the mayor of Mumbai <laughs> because <clears throat> it's not a powerful um, position like the Chinese mayors. So India really need to um, strengthen uh, their municipal institutions, um, but. It's easier to say than <laughs> to be done. Um, the, because India is a democracy, uh, there is a lot of competition between different political parties. So if the state government is ruled by BJP, then and the local municipal government is dominated by the Congress uh, party or other uh, regional party, then there's no uh, almost no chance that <laughs> the state governments would want to share power with the local municipal governments. <clears throat> but India need, needs to find ways to uh, empower the local municipal institutions. For example, um, um, to make municipal jobs uh, more attractive to, uh, to uh, people with higher education. Um, so that's uh, one thing I can, I can think of. Great. Uh, Bill, do you have a question? Uh, yes, thanks. Uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. I, I spent a lot of time looking at both countries and I, I learned a lot. Um, I'm, I, I'm interested in probing the limits of what these uh, government models can do and uh, so I have a question about the limits for each country. Uh, given its, its uh, uh, 
informal associational approach to uh, problems of pollution. Is, is the problem of cleaning up pollution in India hopeless? Uh, I look, for instance, at uh, the promises to clean up the, the Ganges River. Uh, this was a big commitment of the prime minister and nothing has happened. Uh, on the Chinese side, I wonder if the effort to totally control COVID means that China will have to close itself off uh, for the indefinite future uh, as we get new variants and uh, uh, you don't have as much of the population exposed. Uh, are, the, are these uh, limits for what these two models can do? Um, yes, I think there are severe limits for, uh, for, for, for both models. So for air pollution, for example, I don't think the territorial mentality is helpful for reducing pollution in the long term. Um, um, if there's no incentive for Chinese mayors to collaborate, work together with other cities, with other provinces, then China will not have blue sky <laughs> in, the, in the long run. Um, for obvious reasons, air pollution doesn't recognize uh, city limits uh, administrative lines and jurisdictions. But that is actually very easy to fix. Um, if the central government can put in some incentive for, uh, for example, in the annual evaluation sheet, and right now it's uh, economic performance, environmental performance, social stability, and then COVID control. If they can add uh, something uh, like a small incentive to encourage local uh, mayors or party secretaries to collaborate and then add some concrete measures <laughs> uh, for, to assess their uh, collaboration, then I think the local policymakers will be um, much willing to, uh, or they would feel more pressure to uh, work together with the other cities. Um, and for India, is it really hopeless? Uh, I, I am... I'm always optimistic, so I don't think it's hopeless. Uh, I live in Chicago, actually on the campus of University of Chicago. I'm not affiliated with um, uh, the public policy uh, school, but I know that there are many um, professors, faculty, students. Uh, they um, have been working with the, uh, the different state governments in India, and, and they try to uh, introduce some market based mechanism to encourage uh, the private sector, the big polluters to uh, reduce um, uh, emission. So there has been a lot of grassroots level uh, exchange between India and different parts, other countries, such as US, University of Chicago. And I think um, over time, the, it's accumulative. Over time, there should be, I hope there will be some uh, substantial progress in uh, terms of uh, pollution reduction. But uh, the key actor, uh, the municipal governments, um, for example, Delhi government, I think they should uh, play a more proactive role 
when I did research for the book, mostly around 2015, 16, I just didn't sense any uh, urgency uh, on the part of uh, the Delhi government. Only in the last two years, or maybe three years, um, because of uh, the rising pressure from the public <clears throat> for uh, demanding uh, for a cleaner air. So the Delhi government has become just a little bit more responsive <clears throat> to the public pressure, uh, but still they don't have um, um, the, the funding they allocate for pollution control is so little. Uh, and with that little funding, you just can't do much. Um, so I think the local authority should uh, play a more dominant role at work um, more closely with the NGOs, not against the NGOs. They've been working against the NGOs. Um, but thank you for your question. Great. Well, we have a question in the Q&A that sort of builds on uh, Bill's question. Uh, Sam K asks, is it possible that a comparable level of lively contestation, negotiation, and competition between different societal actors and interests is happening in the governance of Chinese cities, but happening behind closed doors or inside the party itself? If so, how can your um, territorial classification account for this kind of politics? Um, and, and how do you think that is different from the kind of associational politics that you saw and that you see in India? Um, thank you for another great question. Uh, uh, first of all, let me say this. I think in both countries, you will find examples of both approaches. <laughs> of uh, urban governance. Even in China, there are many examples of associational model models or uh, logics of uh, uh, managing urban affairs. And I can give you a, a small example. <laughs> uh, it's a, about mass testing, um, COVID test. So some of the testing sites in the south of the country, the Pearl River Delta, are actually located in uh, village temples. Um, um, so, uh, so the, po the, the, the point is uh, people go to the temples and they all have uh, big families. So it's um, by uh, putting pressure on family members or relatives. So the local authorities hope to uh, get more people tested as quickly as possible. So I, I think that's a great example of uh, associational <laughs> type of uh, mobilization. Um, but um, if we, um, so in both countries, we can find both types of uh, um, urban governance. But um, if you ask which one is more dominant, uh, I think very clearly uh, the Chinese approach is much more territorial than the Indian <laughs> approach. Uh, it, uh, it's not an invention of uh, the, from 1949. Um, so in the book, I traced back some of the territorial institutions to the uh, 13th century, to um, also to the Ming-Qing Republican period. So there's a long tradition of the territorial way of uh, managing local affairs far before 1949. Um, and I think that explains why uh, the mentality of the system is so deep rooted. So if something happens, then China would crack down on localities, close off neighborhoods, uh, and then send people 
to uh, conquer and control each cell. That's uh, that's their um, uh, their um, default uh, reaction to any crisis. And for India, I'm sure there are uh, many examples of uh, the territorial. Uh, approach or ways of uh, managing urban affairs. But uh, in general, the territorial institutions at the city level are so weak and that because they are so weak, <laughs> that creates space for other actors, private sector, uh, business community, journalists, uh, activists to intervene and to uh, influence policymaking. Thank you uh, for your question. Great, thank you. Um, we also have another question about how land is valued in the two places um, and how that affects the, the informal settlements that you, you saw in both places and the different kinds of informality. So Lu Zheng says, thanks for the fascinating talk. Could you please talk more about the land price that developers pay to the local government in exchange for developing the land for commercial purposes in Guangzhou and Mumbai? And then how are these land revenues um, distributed and used in the two different cities? Um, from Zheng Lu, thank you Zheng Lu <laughs> for another big mega question about land revenue. Um, there's a huge literature on land revenue. Um, my impression is, uh, so there an auction. Um, so for example, if there's a piece of land in the middle of uh, Shanghai um, up for auction, then different developers or investors can bid for that piece of land and then everything's transparent. The land would go to the highest bidder. But that, so that's one track, but there, there are other tracks which are probably uh, behind the stage, behind the door negotiations. And I think there are multiple tracks for land transactions. Um, and um, uh, how land revenue is used by local governments. Um, as, uh, we all know that local Chinese government, the, the, the like, municipal governments are in deep debt. I think they spend all of their revenue, if not more, <laughs> Uh, to build infrastructure, uh, expand. So every Chinese city has built new towns. Uh, they may not be called new towns, new districts, uh, development zones, but cities in China want to expand because if they expand, they can have more land and all the extra land uh, is automatically urban land. So the municipal government is the owner, landlord for the towns uh, that are merged uh, by, uh, by, by the main, uh, the central cities. So they want to expand, then to expand, <clears throat> they, they also need to uh, build uh, infrastructure, roads, <clears throat> uh, subway lines, extension of lines. So I don't have the numbers, but I, I think they probably spend a good portion of their land revenue on the infrastructure. <clears throat> but not on social welfare. Um, I'm sure maybe Nara knows this <laughs> better <laughs> than me. Um, so if we look at how um, the pandemic has affected, for example, migrant workers in the early uh, months of 2020, a lot of migrant workers were not able to work because they had 
they can't couldn't leave their hometowns <laughs> due to lockdowns. Uh, so the central government policies have uh, most of the policies were in the early 2020 were about how to support enterprises. So they used the word stabilize. They wanted to stabilize enterprises. And by doing that, they hope they hoped that these enterprises can keep jobs so migrant workers can benefit from the trickle-down effect of these policies. But there, there's almost no direct cash payment program for migrant workers. There is a little bit. I don't remember the number, but the amount is so small, so it doesn't mean much. So the question is, if the migrant workers in the first half of 2020 were the most affected, why China did so little to help the migrant workers? Maybe they, one answer is they don't care. Uh, <laughs> they care more about businesses. But the more plausible answer probably uh, is probably because they can't. The local governments don't have the money to extend, um, for example, unemployment insurance uh, benefits to the migrant workers who lost jobs during those months. <clears throat> the, um, um, the figure, the uh, so over the uh, national total expenditure, uh, let's say it's 100%. So 85% of the national total expenditure uh, was made by local governments. So it means um, if there are policies, uh, for example, social welfare policies announced or mentioned top leaders, then the local governments need to implement them but they have so many responsibilities, so they probably don't have the revenue to, uh, to, <laughs> to make it happen. Uh, so, at, um, so to come back to the land question, uh, I think Zheng Lu asked how the land revenue is spent. Uh, I would say it's probably spent mostly on uh, infrastructure and very little is spent on welfare um, programs for the urban poor or the migrant workers. That's, I don't know the numbers, <laughs> I don't have the numbers, but that's my impression. Okay, great. We have another comparative question um, from Ran Mei. Um, says, thank you, Xue Fei, for a great talk. For the past decade, there have been several mega sustainable city or green capital projects in China and India. Um, what do you think are the key similarities and differences between these eco-city movements in, in China and India? Um, hi, Miran. I can't see you, but I know Miran very well. <laughs> she's a student at uh, GSD, um, and she's done some work for me, actually, last year. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Eco-cities, what's the difference between China and India? Um, many differences. Um, I think first, maybe the scale and the speed. So the eco city um, initiatives or programs, uh, they, I think, of almost more than ten years ago, if not twenty years ago. Um, some have failed, uh, but um, uh, a lot of 
cities, uh, even the smaller provincial capitals, uh, they use eco-city or other terms with the, the word eco for branding. Uh, so uh, in terms of the scale, it's, uh, it's happening in China at a much larger scale. And also uh, the speed of uh, building, construction, implementation. And for India, I actually I hear the word smart city more often than eco city. <laughs> uh, but you are in the field of architectural design and sustainability. You probably know better than me. Um, uh, so a lot of the um, China also use uses the word smart city and. To be honest, I still don't know what what's so smart about the smart cities. <laughs> I think smart means uh, digital surveillance. That's just my understanding. <laughs> uh, um, so, um, so India has this smart city program. Uh, it, um, I think, one of the goals is to encourage um, uh, local reforms or innovation in governance. So, uh, for example, if a small city wants to uh, digitize their um, their um, uh, municipal website or different services so people can apply for permits, uh, uh, not in person, but uh, online, then they can get a small grant from the central government. Um, but again, even for India, a lot of places have used the word smart city or eco city to do other things. Um, many times when researchers go to the sites of smart cities or eco-cities, they find nothing, <laughs> just empty field. There's not even one sign, the smallest sign showing you the, the smartness or sustainability. So that's my impression. Um, it's, um, it has potential, but uh, to date it's been used in many cases, to uh, uh, achieve other goals, not sustain sustainability. Well, great, thank you. Well, we're out of time now. We have many more interesting questions here. So I encourage people who posted the questions to follow up by email <laughs> and send them to you directly. Um, but I really wanna thank you for a really interesting um, presentation and discussion. And again, I hope we can do this in person sometime yes, soon. Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for coming. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.